this is Criminal Behaviorology. To assist the criminal and civil justice systems. To improve our society. A podcast like no other. Here is your host, Timothy Joseph. I uh, didn't know quite how to prepare for this one other than I know some particular cases, but I saw you had a training on this about the the family uh, annihilators. Uh, Well, I haven't done the training yet, Uh but I'll send it to you when it comes. I've done another podcast on Uh familicide. Uh Uh-huh. Familicide, yeah. Yep, but I was thinking, are you okay with us? Talking general overview, familicide, and family annihilators are often used interchangeably, but and just talking about the causes, the factors involved. I don't want to talk about any case studies. I think that gets tricky. Okay. If unless I mean you can sh- obviously please share, but I try to stay away from case studies for this. There's a reason for that. I'll mm-hmm. tell you now yeah. or later if you want. But we 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 can do whatever you want to do. I. I love the the certain case studies. I don't know why this is appealing, but here they are that that appeal to me. That you you may or may not have heard of John List, um, uh, that killed his family, and uh, I think you were on the show talking about that on uh, one of the the John List. Uh, he was on America, one of the first people on America's Most Wanted. He killed his family and then was on the run for seventeen years. Uh, the announcer of that training taught taught me about that case. I oh, he really? brought it up, so okay. I don't know that case. I okay, I think fine. I was just a young kid. I was born. Oh yeah, when was... John Walsh came out, I think I was like seven years old or something. So I don't remember a lot of that stuff. Yeah, well, they made a couple movies about it, so but uh, check that out. Okay, Bradford Bishop. They they get more interesting because I thought I'd heard them all and I haven't. Bradford Bishop. He was a work for the State Department spoke like three or four or more languages, killed his family with a hammer, and escaped. Probably went to Europe. Uh, Probably went to Europe and uh, maybe lived out the rest of his life there. So Uh, they never caught him? Never caught him. Oh, jeepers. And uh, it was was on Unsolved Mysteries where somebody... Uh, people don't aren't sure if they believe him or not, but a former employee was on vacation in Italy on uh, like a rural tour, and he walks into the public bathroom. Bishop does. Like he's all bearded up and like, oh, oh and the guy chases after him and loses him. Uh, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, it's not great, but it is. Uh, oh, I know. I get you. We're, we're crazy people here. Though. Yeah. Uh, Robert, so they, there's so many cases yeah. I can't keep up with. I mean, yeah, every other day there's a new case, but I mean, there's high profile ones, of course. And the other one is Robert Fisher. It was okay. a documentary. Where in the world is Robert Fisher? I can't, uh, it's really he just took off uh, and vanished, um, and and not a trace of him after uh, really brutally killing uh, his wife and two kids. Um. Can you bring up those while we talk today? Yeah. And I'll just, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, fascinating because a lot of these guys end up killing themselves, but not always, yeah. obviously. 
Some believe Robert Fisher had to have killed himself. He was like an outdoorsman, woodsman. I think they would have found a trace of him somewhere. They would have found a piece of clothing. They would have found something. I left his vehicle so? and just vanished, unless he had help. And then uh, that last one was uh, from France, the DuPont family massacre, uh, yeah. where that guy took off and he's vanished. Um, it's like an heir to like a huge fortune. So uh, there's a uh, there is a theme of uh, arrogance of these guys that they're just the family man that they uh, you know have this pretense, and then they decide they don't want it anymore because of the the. The last one was financial, could have been other pressures, you know. Uh, and then, I mean, it's the, really the ultimate uh, abandonment of responsibility, and then it just become nothing. And uh, 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 the that's what interests me about it. So, but we can talk about what you want to talk about because I know you've got a lot. Well, I'll of... talk about all those things because all that's in the literature and uh-huh. toxic masculinity uh-huh. and. Just seeing your family as property and I can dispose of them when I want. I'm in control. I, I thought maybe just briefly talking just a smidgy on domestic violence. I'd probably weave in a little bit about COVID because that's amplified domestic violence. How it trickles into family homicide. Family annihilators, a little bit on all the, the subtypologies. Weapon profiles, suicide, mental illness, all just causes, consequences, profiles. Uh, the family dynamics, and this is, goes to domestic violence, is interesting because I think it is like, okay, he's the head of the family. And then like, like uh, it was both John List and, uh, and Bishop, they had their mothers living with them. I don't know about, I, I don't know about the others. I don't think so. But that was interesting. Like, okay, you know, I'm in, I'm financially in charge, and I think that the wives, in a couple of cases, the mothers say, okay, you're financially in charge. Then I want to get you know the stuff I want. So it becomes a a narcissistic back and forth that I, I suspect it builds up over the years. Like it looks good, and it's not under you know uh, absolutely. It's rarely happened overnight. And it's in a book called. Um, uh, the Seductions of Crime, uh, okay. Jack Katz, he was a sociologist, but he talked about the um, righteous slaughter, or uh, it's like a you're in a marriage or a relationship, and the other person does something that bothers you for years and years and years, and then you finally have to now admit that this has been bothering you, uh, and you can't take it anymore, and that, he said that's a very lethal uh, point that you know it's like not only uh, you know that you've been held prisoner by this by all this time and so it's a good uh it's good things about how families end up in a lethal situation maybe you and i should put together a, a live training sometime for yeah. my forensic institute via zoom and i could talk literature empirical if you cover case studies and or something sure. like that or yeah that'd be fun so you know yeah, I'll send you an email. Yeah, I'm I'm scheduling out till May of next year already, so we're booked till then. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. I've seen your that uh, show, the criminologist. Uh, it's a lot of a lot of good interviews you've had on there. So, do you want to uh, record anything now, or what? What do you want to do? Yeah, let's rock and roll. Ready okay. to go? I'll I'll just get it started and uh, we'll act like we just got here. You bet. 
Okay, we're here. Criminal Behaviorology. Jared, uh, you've been a guest before, and I'm glad you're back. Uh, you want to reintroduce yourself? You bet. Thank you for having me back. And mm -hmm. so I'm a professor, a trainer, consultant, and researcher. I do a lot of work in the area of trauma and brain injuries and one of the areas I do a lot of work in is domestic violence and mm -hmm. family homicide. I've written several articles on related topics, doing more podcasts, doing more trainings on the topic, and mm -hmm. really trying to take a deep dive in, into the causes and the consequences and the behavioral profiles of different variations of family homicide. And I know today we're going to be talking about familicide and family annihilators. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you come at this kind of work, uh, would you say, from a very clinical perspective, like kind of how to help, how to understand, how to help, things like that? Yeah, I would say a lot of it, too. A lot of the work I do, I'm really starting to take a deep dive into the neurocriminology literature mm -hmm. and really looking at basically like the neurobiobehavioral characteristics that may contribute to criminal behavior. So mm -hmm. I try to take a deep dive into not just the psychology aspect, but what's going on, like biobehavioral, biochemically, trauma, even prenatal trauma attachment. Mm -hmm. So it's usually not just one factor that explains, obviously, criminal behavior. It's driven by a number of individual factors, social, family, mm -hmm. mental health, sometimes physical factors. Mm -hmm. So... It gets complicated, but we try to really take a deep dive in, into it through kind of a multidisciplinary, multi-systemic lens. It's something that needs to be looked at as as a phenomenon that develops over time, uh, even from birth or even before that, uh, of a of the buildup of these different factors that finally manifests itself in some kind of a crime that we don't understand. I would say in most cases, you're absolutely right. Again, obviously, every case is so different. There's some cases that may not fit any profile whatsoever. And there were no warning signs anywhere that anyone picked up on. But there's probably something if you dig deeper internally, obviously, internal distress and mm -hmm. thinking patterns and attachment representations and looking at the brain, what's going on in the frontal lobes and how they process information, how do they make decisions. Even looking to the gut, I think people don't realize how important it is to understand that gut-brain health connection and mm -hmm. what's going on in the body and inflammation and so many things we still don't understand. And I do a lot of work in the area of the HPA access. That's a fascinating area I encourage all criminologists and behavioral profilers to learn about. It's called the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access just mm -hmm. fascinating topic it's our stress response system mm -hmm. i think it has a lot to do with problematic behavior when it becomes dysregulated as well and then the whole field of just psycho neuroimmunology mm -hmm. counseling. and there's so many different facets i think that overlap or bump up against some of the work you're doing but I'm trying to really take a deep dive into all of these areas and just seeing what the literature says. And I am finding a lot of commonalities amongst these fields of study. So uh, we, you mentioned, and I'll make sure I see if I get it right on the first try, familicide. 
and uh, I have heard the term family annihilator. Are these the same things? Are they distinct? What's the what do those terms mean? More commonalities between the two than differences. Depending on what research study you look at, mm -hmm. they are used interchangeably. There might be a little bit of difference between the two, and I'll I'll break that down today. Would it be helpful just to give a little context of like domestic violence in general mm -hmm. and kind of the progression to some of these cases? Yeah. And we've covered a couple different on the podcast, a couple different things about domestic violence because it's such an important topic, but I'll, I'll let you go with it. So I won't go into much detail. Just again, domestic violence, family violence, intimate partner violence, just looking at any pattern of like abusive behavior or controlling mm -hmm. or threatening or coercive kind of behavioral patterns. Again, the overall majority of people who engage in domestic violence don't go on to murder a family member, but a high percentage of people that have murdered a family member exhibit some of these behavioral patterns before the homicide took place. How long before? It's difficult to know. It could be years, could be months, could be decades. One thing I do want to point out too, and there's not a, really a lot of empirical data on this, but per se, for domestic homicide, but there's a lot of empirical data in the era of COVID-19 mm -hmm. that family homicide or family violence, child abuse, problematic behaviors have gone up. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Obviously, people are dealing with higher levels of stress and worry. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's economic hardship. Maybe they're more likely to turn to drugs and alcohol. Maybe people before COVID had an opportunity to get some space from each other. Mm -hmm. And during the lockdowns, everyone was in close proximity. Tensions were high. I'm not saying the majority of cases would engage in domestic violence, but mm -hmm. there are some common factors that could contribute to an increase in family violence in the era of COVID-19. And what the research literature is really pointing to is ruling out any type of alcohol or drug problems. We know that's a driver for a lot of lot of these cases mm -hmm. was there a child in the home was the woman pregnant as well but that have added on extra stress extra pressure extra conflict looking at isolation was that family isolated from any type of like supports like services did they not have a lot of resources in terms of transportation access insurance Mm -hmm. just access to different kinds of positive community outlets. What kind of relationship strain were they dealing with before COVID? COVID obviously probably didn't help if they're dealing with some pre-existing family kind of issues. Maybe they were going through a divorce or high conflict divorce or something like that. Was there any history of threats or any history of domestic violence before COVID or was there access to a weapon in the household. So a lot of factors to take into account that could contribute to a possible increase in family violence in the era of COVID-19 and beyond. And all of these factors were there before COVID, but really look at COVID maybe as an amplifier for some cases. Again, every case is so different, but we really want to look at this from a stress and trauma lens too. Mm -hmm. I think that helps kind of start illuminating why some of these cases may happen. 
if we now look at just domestic violence, family violence, intimate partner violence, depending on what typology you look at, mm -hmm. without a doubt, this is a global problem. This is not something that just happens in the United States. This is a problem that happens around the world. Mm -hmm. It's a social problem. Obviously, it can devastate families and communities and friends and neighbors for generations. Mm -hmm. It's an economic problem, too. It's a costly kind of criminal behavior, and it's a public health issue as well. So that's why I'm really studying this topic, because it really is a global, social, economic, public health, mental health problem. If we we just look at general literature on what are some of the main risk factors in intimate partner homicide cases, and that's not necessarily exactly what we're talking about today, mm -hmm. but having access to a firearm is a potential risk factor. Again, most people that have a firearm aren't going to engage in this, but this research literature indicates that having access to a firearm maybe one risk factor we need to take into account. Another huge risk factor is really looking at, was there any history of strangulation? That is a big, big topic to be aware of when we look at these cases is ruling out any history of strangulation by the perpetrator to the survivor. That is an amplifier. Obviously that brings the level of violence to another level. So we're, we're seeing like, instances of strangulation uh, is kind of a precursor behavior to familiar to the domestic uh, violence murders. It, it is an accelerant. I mean, again, mm -hmm. by no means am I saying everyone who has engaged in strangulation is going to go on and kill someone. But if you look at the actual cases where homicide was committed, mm -hmm. there is a higher incident of strangulation history. Mm -hmm. yeah, never 100%, but it's an elevated level. And we also want to look at, was there any history of sexual assault or rape between the partners as well? Mm -hmm. oh, previous history. Or even the threat of trying to hurt someone or threat of, if you leave me, I'm going to kill you. Or if you leave me, I'm going to go get this weapon. Or if you leave me, you're going to regret it, making kind of indirect threats. Obviously, when we're looking at any form of domestic violence or intimate partner homicide cases, looking at any history of controlling behaviors or patterns around that, and maybe the person has never threatened the spouse directly or the children, but maybe have they ever threatened an animal in the house too? That's another mm -hmm. factor we need to take into account in some of these cases. Is so there, for, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, is there something distinct uh, from domestic uh, violence, homicide, and the cases of uh, familicide that it takes it to a new level, or is it just kind of the same thing that's just manifested itself to an extreme state i i would say so we're look if we look at this like the umbrella term and depending on what research article you look at mm -hmm. i would say the umbrella term would be intrafamilia homicide mm -hmm. so that would encompass the murder of a spouse a murder of a child of family annihilators but for familicide 
it's really a type of mass murder, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. And some of the research mm-hmm. really calls it kind of a mass murder type of event that happened within the family. So you have one family member who kills other family members in the household. Typically, it's going to be a spouse and one or more children. Mm-hmm. And in most of these cases, the male is the perpetrator in the overwhelming majority. Occasionally, the female may be a perpetrator, but most of this research really looks at the male as the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. So think of it more as like a multiple victim homicide event, again, that's happened within that family unit. Obviously, there are numerous socioeconomic variables to take into account as to why these happen contextual environmental factors, psychological and emotional factors. And again, in some of these cases, it could also involve the murder of a pet. It could involve the murder of an extended family member who is in the house. These are very complex cases. They can, obviously they're extremely difficult to understand. And I'm sure your audience has seen plenty of cases like in the news or the popular media where they're interviewing like the neighbors Mm-hmm. the neighbors more times than not are always saying this was the nicest family this is the perfect family i never saw this coming mm-hmm. i hear that over and over again in some of the cases i've kind of reviewed and stuff and there's more and more literature on this topic but it's really a drop in the bucket compared to other kinds of like criminal kinds of behavior so it is still poorly understood i mean we're learning more as the year goes go on obviously but it really challenges our thinking of how the nuclear family for so many people is like a safe haven. Because unfortunately, when we look at homicide rates in the United States, you're more likely to be murdered by a family member or someone you know than by a stranger, unfortunately. And again, when these cases happen, they're rare, thankfully. This is not something that's widespread, but when they happen, Without a doubt, they receive very intense media coverage. Mm -hmm. And if you're a researcher listening to this, there are other terms that are used sometimes interchangeably, but depending on the study, there is some definitional inconsistencies. So mass homicide sometimes is used to describe this, intimate partner homicide, Homicide suicide cases involving family members, Mm -hmm. family annihilators is sometimes used. And I'll talk about that topic today. But again, it really is an understudied area. It's oftentimes there's no outward signs per se. But if you dig deeper in these cases, there's usually a lot of variables going on. Timothy, would I be able to share a couple of the variables that come up consistently in this research literature with your audience? Sure. Are you going to do a share screen? No, I'll just, I kind of just share in, okay. in general and stuff. Sure. Every case is different, obviously. Not a lot of these cases, the after the perpetrator ends up murdering his or her family, they end up killing themselves. But again, not in every case. Mm-hmm. So we need to take that into account. But the consistent variables that have come up in this research literature, if you take a deep dive into this, you're going to find higher incidence of psychiatric instability. Again, not Uh every case they're going to have mental health problems, Mm -hmm. but in a sizable percentage, there's some psychological problems Mm -hmm. going on. Mm -hmm. You'll see higher incidence of personality-based disorder kind of traits. Depression is noted to be higher 
among some of the perpetrators of this, and there are many reasons for that I'll talk about. Mm -hmm. Substance use is involved in some of these cases, but not others. Mm -hmm. During the time of the offense, sometimes the perpetrator is intoxicated. Other times, they're not using any substances. Mm -hmm. They may have a previous history of violent behavior or risk-taking behavior. In other cases, they may not. Looking at any previous history of suicide attempts, impulse control problems are talked about in this literature. Mm -hmm. Sometimes rumination is a factor. So rumination is like a problematic thinking style mm -hmm. where if that person gets stuck on anger rumination. It's almost just gets stuck in their head and it's over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Divorce can be a triggering event or the threat of that spouse saying I'm leaving and I'm taking the children. That could be a potential triggering event. Mm -hmm. Some of these perpetrators may have higher incidence of uh, paranoia or jealousy, and they may be motivated by humiliation. So looking at a history, if they've been humiliated, that should be a factor. Infidelity or suspected infidelity mm -hmm. has been looked at as well. Couple cases have looked at pathological gambling as being one factor of many to consider. So let's say one of the, the perpetrator had a gambling problem, spent all their money, had no more money, the family's in financial ruin. In some cases, the person in their mind may think by murdering the family, I'm saving that family from a life of hardship. So in their mind, they're thinking they might be doing their family a favor. Shame is an issue in some of these cases. Mm -hmm. Some studies have looked at childhood trauma. Again, most people have had childhood trauma and never commit these kind of offenses, but childhood trauma histories may be more common among some of these perpetrators as well. And some of these individuals may just be seeking revenge against their wife and see their family as property and they can do what they want. Some cases, the person may have lost a job or just dealt with a whole host of issues. I know there's a couple cases where they suspected maybe chronic traumatic encephalopathy, where someone sustained multiple head injuries over a long period of time early on in life would have been a factor in some cases as well. I, I wonder, are, are you seeing, uh, are, since some define these as mass murderers, do you see some of the same patterns of mass murderers? uh that kill people they don't know uh or the other types of mass murders since there's there's actually several varieties of them uh as yeah, you do it's... with the familicide family annihilator style yeah it, it's so tough because yeah there are a ton of mass murder typologies i think Holmes and Holmes, if your audience is familiar with them i'm sure you are too they've mm -hmm. written several books in the past and they had a number of different mass murder typologies. I think there's a Suedo commando type of mm -hmm. mass murder where, and then there was the family annihilator they described where that family annihilator destroys his or her family. And there's this mm -hmm. disgruntled citizen type. There's a lot of different types. I think there's a psychotic mass killer type. There's mm -hmm. a youthful school shooter type. There's mm -hmm. other ones too, but they differ in terms of, typology, symptomology in some cases. Yes, there's overlap in some, but some can differ. And I know you, Timothy, you've talked about a couple cases to me in the past too, where some of these individuals end up killing their family and just disappearing forever and they're still alive. So 
Well, I mean, it, just in, in looking for this, uh, maybe some people are already familiar. Uh, it, it was, you know, they had a couple movies. But the John List case of uh, where he, you know, um, John uh, List, American murderer and longtime fugitive. This was in 1971. Killed his wife, mother, and three children in their home in Westfield, New Jersey, and then disappeared. Uh, he planned the murders uh, so carefully that a month passed before uh, anyone uh, anyone ever knew that it had happened. And then uh, he was caught. He was caught due to the the show. You remember this, America's Most Wanted. They uh, they profiled him on there, and they uh, they tracked him down. He was living a normal life. He had remarried, and uh, was uh, had another name, and uh, apparently had had in seventeen some years. He'd had no trouble at all. So he just annihilated his family, and just went on with a new life. These cases are tragic. They're confusing. Again, I mentioned before they're rare, thankfully, but one too many. Uh, I, I came across a statistic in a study that was done in um, several, or a couple of years ago in 2021, and this particular study indicated the prevalence rates for familicide were about one to two familicides per 10 million people. Mm-hmm. So again, they're very rare, but again, they they happen, and again, they receive a lot of media attention, been a lot of documentaries on these cases, and the goal is to get that to zero, obviously, and and familicide is just one term of many that fall under that umbrella of intrafamilia homicide. And I don't know if I could just share briefly some of the other typologies with your audience, what mm-hmm. they are. Sure. This is not all encompassing, but there's something called matricide, where it's mm-hmm. the killing of one's mother. Mm-hmm. There's patricide, killing of a father. There's siblicide, it's killing mm-hmm. of a sibling. There's sorocide and fratricide. Sorocide's killing of a sister. Fratricide's killing of a brother. Okay. Parasite, it's the killing of a parent. And there's other ones too. That's not, a, again, an all-encompassing list, but those are some good search terms if your audience wanted to like read some articles on these topics and go a little bit deeper into it. Uh, there so, is one, uh, Jared, there's one on here. Yeah. Ronald Gene Simmons uh an American mass murderer and spree killer who killed 16 people over a week-long period in Arkansas. I remember this case in 1987. A retired military serviceman, Simmons, murdered 14 members of his family. This was over the Christmas break, including a daughter he had sexually abused and the child he had fathered with her, as well as a former co-worker uh, and a stranger. He also wounded four others. Simmons was sentenced to death 16 times and refusing to appeal. His sentence was executed uh, June 25th, 1990. They they use uh, the term familicide. They also use the term filicide. I hadn't heard that one before. That's in the, the search criteria on it. So uh, that's another term for it. Filicide's the killing of one's child. Okay, filicide then. Okay, yeah. So with him, I, I don't know that case per se, so I don't want to speculate too much, but if he killed his immediate family and extended family, including a spouse, kids, and other ones, all of those other terms 
would partially fit, but I would say probably the familicide makes the most sense where you're killing the spouse, at least one child, if not more, and it could extend into other family members. Yeah, other uh, other children and their uh, their children. So his uh, you would be his like his daughter in law and things like that coming in for the Christmas break. He's killing them, and then he takes it all the way to spree killer status by leaving and then killing people he's worked with and so forth. And that's a classic example of a family annihilator, and I can talk about that too in a few minutes, but. Just to give your audience a little bit more on familicide, like if we're looking at like incident considerations, mm-hmm. it, every case is different, every country is different, but they, familicide cases more often occur in rural areas rather than urban areas. And they're typically these offenses are mm-hmm. committed in locations that are known to the perpetrator. So a lot of times in the home or like a shared area, that the victim also is aware of a good percentage of these cases, the perpetrator after the homicide ends up killing themselves or dies by suicide by cop. Mm-hmm. It not some of the cases you mentioned to me that obviously did not happen. Domestic violence was a risk factor for a number of these cases, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. Interestingly too, the weapon selection for the, these cases a lot of people most of the time it's going to be like a firearm but not always it could involve stabbings it could be involving beating with an object a number of different variables need to be taken into account and if you look at some of the data i think there's a study done there might have been a few that came out of canada where they looked at the perpetrators of these situations and some of these perpetrators turned to strangulation or stabbing more often as that cause of death, in particular, where c- countries where like gun ownership was more limited. Mm-hmm. So that definitely needs to be taken into account. But if you were to look at this literature as a whole, and you've kind of alluded to this too, oftentimes in these perpetrators, there's a long standing history of like failure or frustration. It mm-hmm. wasn't just involving like what happened in the last few days. Or a few months there's usually a history going on with this person that either they feel like they're a failure or they've dealt with a lot of frustration in life mm-hmm. and this repeated exposure to like frustration or that sense of being a failure can often erode their coping abilities over time and it, that could be a potential driving factor in some cases and then when they get to that point where they've exhausted all their coping strategies all of these other variables I mentioned could be at play for some of them. Even little disappointments at that point could become so catastrophic in that person's mind. Mm-hmm. They start ruminating. They start thinking the only way out is to end the life of my family or the only way to save my family from humiliation and shame is to kill my family. Mm-hmm. So it, it does get tricky. If you dig deeper into this research too, some studies point to the fact that a high percentage of these cases also take place in residencies that are located in more middle-class suburban kind of mm-hmm. locations as well. Mm-hmm. 
the mean age, I know there's a study done, I think it was done in 2021 as well, where this study looked, it was a systematic review of the literature. I think it was a Carlson and colleagues looked at this in 2021. Mm -hmm. And they found that the mean age of offenders for these kind of crimes were the perpetrator was around 35 to 43 years of age. Mm -hmm. And in most cases, the offender was older than his spouse. Some of these cases, they also included some elevated levels of depression, paranoia, and psychosis. Mm -hmm. Some personality disorders were noted, increases in substance misuse in some more obsessive compulsive types of behaviors. And their study also, they looked at how many out of these cases, was there, how, how frequent was domestic violence in these histories? And they found, depending on the case, it ranged from anywhere from 39 to 92% of the cases they looked at had a history of domestic violence as well. That's just kind of a broad spectrum overview. I can definitely go into a little bit more if you'd like on kind of like murder-suicide and some of the uh, typologies associated with this, if that's helpful, or move into family annihilators as well. I'm just curious about uh, had uh, financial strains. You said failures had financial strains. Uh, I know the John List case, uh, he had written a, a, a rather extensive, somewhat of a confession, I suppose, where he... He said the moral decline of his family. Well, a, a closer look at it looked like there was some. He was having some financial problems, and I didn't know if that was, uh, you know, saw himself as the man of the family, in control financially, not in control, and it finally led to this event. Absolutely, financial problems is a factor in some of these cases, and it's absolutely noted in the literature as well. Losing a job, um, maybe someone was engaging in criminal behavior and they got caught. Mm -hmm. They were looking at going to prison. They wanted to save their families from the shame and burden in some of these cases. Mm -hmm. In some cases, the perpetrator was having an affair, kind of leading a double life. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to annihilate their family to focus on their new family, their their girlfriend, their mm -hmm. Well, each case is, is different, but you're going to find commonalities, obviously. And if you look at some of the the literature related to murder-suicide cases that involve family members, we really want to look at this through, I really think, a trauma lens, a stress lens, a psychiatric instability lens. Mm -hmm. Was there conflict in that family? If so, what kind of conflict? Did it evolve and grow over time? Mm-hmm loss and threat history and really employment problems really want to look at that too financial is issues maybe before the employment issues maybe before they lost the job the perpetrator was well respected in the community was well known was well liked then something came out and that really just crumbled their reputation that is a factor too. Did they lose their social status, their social reputation? Did they, that, that is a factor in some of these cases as well. Let, let me interject another one, another case that I like. I've seen a good documentary on it. Robert William Fisher, uh, born in 1961, an American fugitive wanted for, uh, I have to say, allegedly killing his family and exploding the house in which they lived in Scottsdale, Arizona 
in April of 2001. Fisher served in the United States Navy and worked as a later as a firefighter and in the medical field. He married and had two children. The Fishers had a difficult family life. Robert Fisher was described as displaying cruel and controlling conduct towards his family. And on many occasions, he was reported to exhibit a disturbing and violent behavior. He was unfaithful to his wife at least once. Uh, his own parents divorced when he was 15. Uh, in April 10, 2001, the family's home exploded. Inside, Fisher's wife and two children were found dead. Their throats had been slit, and Mary had been shot in the back of the head. Robert Fisher, along with Mary, his wife's car, was absent. Uh, police named him as the only suspect in the killings. And on April 20th, Mary's, Mary's car was discovered in a forest near Payson, Arizona. Robert Fisher's ultimate fate is unknown. He's a, he's a fugitive. He's uh, unknown whereabouts. So, if you break down the typologies, and there's different typologies depending on the study and how far you go back related to these kind of cases, there's a typology called murder by proxy, mm -hmm. where this kind of perpetrator is typically estranged from their spouse, mm -hmm. and they really view their their spouse and their children as the enemy. Mm -hmm. So then they kill the family member really out of rage or it's just motivated by revenge. And this person mm -hmm. has typically profound feelings of shame and anger. Mm -hmm. There's another type of typology called suicide by proxy, where this kind of perpetrator typically is one who feels more worthless and depressed. And that goes to the heart of what you brought up with like financial issues. And mm -hmm. they kill their family because they think they're kind of doing them a favor to save them from humiliation by the rest of society that mm -hmm. they're married to a failure they don't have money they're in just high amounts of debt all of those things so those are a couple typologies you'll find in this literature mm -hmm. if with the family annihilators so familicide family annihilators oftentimes are used interchangeably and if you look at the family annihilator literature when you when I just search that term and I go through the research, it's really a drop in the bucket compared to how many studies have actually been published using the term family annihilator mm -hmm. compared to familicide. But if you go through all the literature that's been published on family annihilators, they also describe those kind of offenders. It's really a type of mass murder as well. And there's no single risk factor or list of risk factors that encompasses and explains why these happen. Again, we see common traits. Family annihilators are almost always going to be male. Mm -hmm. Their intent is to destroy their entire family. And they absolutely see themselves as kind of the top person in the house, that senior man of the house. Most of these cases, the perpetrator is going to be middle-aged. They're going to have some education. History of employment issues are going to be more common. Mm -hmm. It's typically this person has been involved with their spouse or wife or whatever. It's been a long-term relationship. Usually it's not like a short-term relationship. And they tend to be highly possessive of their family and wife. Mm -hmm. Both the overwhelming majority of family annihilator cases are premeditated. This is not something that 
mm-hmm. was just in the spur of the moment. Mm-hmm. And I think, Timothy, we talked about, too, these kind of perpetrators really view their family as property. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, these perpetrators to the outside world are going to be seen as a good family man. But oftentimes these perpetrators are going to be dealing with higher levels of paranoia and depression, some substance misuse issues in some of these cases. Mm-hmm. The research also points to the fact that the majority of these kind of offenders also have traits or a diagnosis or could meet diagnostic criteria for a type of personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Trauma histories are going to be more common among these offenders in their past. They typically are going to kill each family member who is present in the entire home. Mm-hmm. And that can trickle down into killing a pet in some of these cases. Right. Good percentage of these cases, too, they're going to kill themselves or suicide by cop. But some of the cases you've alluded to, that doesn't happen in all cases. They may disappear and just start uh, an entire new life. I have come across some studies. I can't remember where I've read this, but a higher percent, this is really interesting, a higher percentage of these family annihilator cases happen on Sundays and in Mm -hmm. August, kind of during those summer vacation months. Mm Mm-hmm. So just something to think about. Again, every case is different, but that's some of the patterns some of these researchers have found. Some of the major triggering events that this literature has found for family annihilators really looks to that breakdown of the family. So was there a divorce, separation, or the threat of leaving, or the threat, I'm going to take my children and you're not going to see my kids again? That rejection or perceived rejection could be a triggering event or just having reduced access to their children. So maybe they went through a really conflicted court case and the spouse, the male perpetrator, ended up losing custody of Mm -hmm. the children and can't see their children much anymore. This research also really points to the fact that toxic masculinity is a factor in a lot of these cases. So if your audience isn't familiar with like toxic masculinity, just think of this like the perpetrator really has that power and control mentality where they are over their wife, they're over their family. They might isolate the family. Maybe they're engaging in some economic abuse and only allowing their wife to spend so much money each week, keeping track of her miles, really keeping track of who she talks to, where she goes. Could involve some psychological or emotional abuse, some really heavy over kind of dominance or maybe even violent threats. So if you leave me, your, your, your life's going to end. I mean, using those threats. And if you look at this literature too, there's four different types of typologies. The researchers have dug deeper into there's a typology called self-righteousness kind of family annihilator offender, Mm -hmm. where again, this person really sees that breakdown of the family as just unbearable and Mm -hmm. they are there to punish. There's the disappointed subtype where they feel like they've lost control of the family. And by killing the family, that's helping that offender regain control. There's the paranoid type where they're dealing with some paranoia and they may kill the family out of paranoia. Mm -hmm. There's another type called anomic type where this kind of offender might be more socially alienated, 
socially unstable. This could relate to economic failure, mm -hmm. bankruptcy, long-term unemployment, and then they're dealing with unbearable shame. And not all these offenders fit perfectly into each of these subtypes, but that's kind of how some of the research literature has broken it down. Yeah, that the Ronald Eugene Simmons case, he, he had taken his family across country and it was related to that sexual abuse of his daughter and uh, child born by incest that he was being investigated in one state, took them all the way to another state, uh, and then was having problems at his place of work there, that, that economic failure, that career failure, things like that. And saw himself as completely over the family, you know. Could I leave your audience just with a couple other variables just to consider and maybe just if they want to take their knowledge to that next level? Sure. So, I mean, uh, to, to clarify uh, for me uh, is the um, familicide, uh, the more general term, while family annihilator is a more specific term. It's uh, like a uh, premeditated he you know, wants to annihilate the entire family, has his own motives for doing so. Some people may disagree with me, but this is how I see it. So we have the familicide, mm -hmm. they kill their spouse, and at least one child. Mm -hmm. Family annihilator tries to wipe out the entire family mm -hmm. within that household. So they would spouse, multiple children, maybe there's an in-law living there, they're trying to wipe out that entire family system within that house. Now, fam familicide would fall under that umbrella too, but it doesn't have to involve everyone in that mm -hmm. house to be classified as familicide. And the family annihilator is premeditated by its nature? Yes, and so, I mean, most of the cases familicide mm -hmm. is it's not just going to happen like you come home one day and do that. There's a progression of events and factors and individual and environmental factors and family factors. But as we can see, there is commonalities among many of the cases. But again, some of the cases just don't fit into that profile always. Well, you could have a familicide case maybe where there, there's a huge big argument. Maybe there's a lot of substance use and drinking, guns get pulled, and then there's a, a big shooting. Similar, maybe along the lines of kind of like gang shootings and other kinds of criminal operations where that could happen. I, I think that could happen, but yeah. then what brought them to that point where their brain went there? Usually mm -hmm. before that, there's probably a long-standing history of frustration, resentment, anger, this pattern, but anything's possible. Absolutely, I can't say with certainty that that could not happen. Okay. So your your final like on on the issue a couple other things that you want to present to us please go ahead. Some of these cases, depending on if you are studying this from an international lens, looking at this through cultural honor killings, could that be uh -huh. a factor in some cases? And that has been studied in this literature. Uh -huh. Is the perpetrator engaging in these behaviors? to try to maintain their own self-image where they're just so motivated by appearance. So we have those narcissistic tendencies mm -hmm. we want to take into account. Looking at loss history, grief and loss, social isolation, I think is a variable we want to take into account. 
Looking at this too is substance misuse, drug or alcohol use, a potential factor. How does psychiatric instability really play into this, including trauma histories, attachment representations, impulse control issues? So maybe the person is dealing with some of those executive functioning impairments, so the frontal lobes aren't working properly. And maybe there's a long history of like some sort of head trauma, maybe multiple, multiple concussions. Looking at histories of self-destructive behaviors as well, risk-taking behaviors. And again, looking at this through a financial hardship lens. And again, the overwhelming majority of people dealing with any of those issues never go on to commit these kind of crimes. Mm -hmm. But the people who commit these crimes oftentimes have some of those variables at play in their backgrounds. Uh, do you think, so since we mentioned um, things about toxic masculinity and did you, uh, if you think of it, and, and, and societal changes, we'll, we'll put it like that. So uh, the families have more options now. You can have divorce. You can have separation. Uh, the, the nuclear family is not uh, as simple a thing as maybe it was in past generations. And for some people that might be good, but it, it creates more opportunities for potential conflict. And then that could up the up the odds that you will have violence in the home. Online harassment, stalking, mm -hmm. um, all of those factors. And extramarital for, relationships, yeah. things like that. So, looking at histories of orders for protection, mm -hmm. all of those things should yeah. be considered too and taken seriously. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, Looking at the future then for uh, familicide, family annihilators, this whole area, where, where do you see where do you see us going with it and the study of it and the understanding of it? Well, I'm just going to keep digging deeper into the literature coming out. I just wrote an article that was published in, on the national level. I can it's a short review article that talks about some of these typologies. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to be doing a training for another group. Uh, early next year on all facets of intermittent partner homicide violence. Hopefully we'll do some more talks on different subtypes. Mm -hmm. And I know you and I talked about maybe we're putting together a little workshop too, looking at this through a empirical based research lens, but then also looking at lots of case studies and how does that line up and what differences are we seeing too? not all case studies are going to line up exactly with what all research says. It just depends on how you define it, what cases they were examining, and how does COVID factor into this? I'll, mm -hmm. I'll be very curious in the next few years, has that changed anything? Has our the way that our economic crisis is for so many people right now, is that a, a driving factor? I've been doing more and more work on the topic of road rage and driver aggression. Mm -hmm. How does that factor into some of these cases? So we dig into these variables and hopefully keep sharing this information with you and your audience in the future. We very much look forward to it. Uh, it's fascinating stuff because, yeah, I, I, I like that what you said, looking at the research literature, you look at it kind of a, from a global view statistical view and then you can also look at it at the lower level at the individual case study level there's there's reasons to do both absolutely 
Timothy, honored to be here again. Thank you. And feel free to share my email with your audience if they're looking for some additional resources on some of the topics I spoke about today. And the name of your training institute, I'll, I'll let you go ahead and say it. Yeah, it's called the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies. It's A as in Adam, I as in Ida, A as in Adam, F as in Frank, S as in Sam.com. Uh, a a, a uh, treasure trove of information on uh, psychology, criminology. I highly recommend it. Jared, uh, hope to see you again in the near future and uh, greatly appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, my friend. Okay, okay. I've paused it now, but uh, uh, is I thought that was pretty good. Is there anything more, more you wanted to tell me? or? No, I think we covered... Uh, a good starting point maybe you and i if you want sent send me your top 10 list of cases that you we could examine i could review everything i could find about them online and then mm -hmm. if you wanted to as well we could then report back and here's 10 case studies we selected these are more high profile ones you've probably seen on the news or america's most wanted here's what we found from looking at newspaper stories, documentaries, and like coding it in a way and looking at the commonalities. Okay, so eight out of these 10 cases had this going on. Here's the outlier one had this. I mean, we could, I could probably pull in a research assistant too to help us if we wanted something like that. Do you ever do anything or come across the Sylvia Likens case? I can, I can send you something or you'll come okay. across that. That's like a hard to understand cases. That's one of the, What's one of the tougher ones? But yeah, I can do that. I got plenty. Of, yeah. I, the hard part of deciding which 10 I want to send you. So you are in your doctor program now, right? Right. And when are you done? Well, I sure hope that it's uh, before this time next year that I'm done in spring. And what's the, what's the actual degree you'll be uh, achieving? Applied, applied behavior analysis. I'm uh, I'm trying to get a dissertation started on uh, competency to stand trial and using discrete trial training to assist competency to stand trial. Pretty forensic okay. psychology kind of stuff. So I want it to be a, a practical, useful thing to people. Are you ABA certified then? Yeah, you have that credential. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a BCBA, uh, and I am a uh, and I am a um, uh, ACE provider. I can provide CEs for the BCBAs and what are called BCABAs. I'd love to learn more about that stuff. And the term you use for your podcast, you're the only one I've ever found yeah. in the world that's used that, which is beautiful. Are you creating like a new model or like uh, new? Be beha behavior, I found out later, behaviorology could be considered a controversial term, but that's the idea that it, it's separate, the study of behavior, separate from psychology, from education, that it ought to be its own thing, behaviorology. So I came up with criminal behavior. I just came up with it on the sly. And then some people say, oh, you're a behaviorologist, you know, because it's, you know, controversial. Should they do it or not? But that's uh, that's where that comes from. No one can answer this question for me. Maybe you can. How... Does someone, when can someone call themselves a criminologist? Like what kind of training do they actually need? I've read everything I could and there's no definitive. There isn't. Run. There's not. Uh, and I think in Australia, they're, they're uh, 
clinical criminologists are the are the forensic psychologists and, and, and because because it could be sociological, it could be psychological, it could be uh, more of like a uh, economics kind of approach to it. And, and some say that criminology shouldn't be a shouldn't be a field of study at all. It's just a you know a collection of different things that. Uh, you know, but you know, you study crime, you look for patterns, try to be scientific about it. Um, I've read a lot of blog sites saying if you have a master's in criminal justice, you at least need to have that. And I have a master's in criminal justice and a yeah. PhD in psychology. But are you a criminologist? Would you call yourself uh, that? I always wanted to be one. I almost took the PhD. Uh, I couldn't find a way to do it in Canada in criminology. But yeah, I I consider what I'm doing a branch of criminology. I would too. Yeah, yeah. I think that's great. So, And you too. Okay. So. Keep me updated. Thank you. Let me know whatever I can do to be helpful. And maybe we can put our heads together on a follow-up down the road. Yeah, working on it. So I appreciate it, Jared. Uh, I'll get in touch with you next time for the next big topic. Sounds good, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Criminal Behaviorology. Check us out on podomatic.com or anchor.fm. Please send questions, comments, and requests for transcripts to criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com.